Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, the Rock Doctors are back in the office for another musical consultation. Plus, we'll review the new albums from avant rapper M.I.A. and indie rockers The New Pornographers. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. That is Pearl Jam a couple of weeks ago headlining at Grant Park at Lollapalooza performing their song Daughter, which they segued, Greg, if you recall, into another Brick in the Wall Part 2 by Pink Floyd, and then rewrote some lyrics. Well, 60,000 people heard that in the park on Sunday night, the final day of Lollapalooza. However, the performance was being webcast by AT&T's Blue Room. AT&T, of course, the major communications giant, which has in a major way embraced music as a way to, to get people excited about its service over all the other wireless and Internet services. And, you know, they've been putting these concerts out on the web on a site called the Blue Room. Apparently, for some time, they have been editing them. There are no mentions that the performers will be edited when they sign the contract. And you can buy their argument that we edit for content because the Blue Room is not a uh, age-restricted site. So we cut out gratuitous curses, but we leave the lyrics unchecked. However, that's not what happened with Pearl Jam. There was no cursing in that segment of Daughter you just heard. However, it was edited and cut out from the webcast. Pearl Jam was very upset about this. They uh, went right up to the edge of calling it uh, censorship. And... At first, AT&T, when it was dealing with the uh, story, said that this was an unfortunate mistake and an isolated incident. Well, lo and behold, another day or two later, it comes out that this has happened several times before. Apparently, it also happened to Lupe Fiasco, who made some comments about the president during Lollapalooza. It happened at Bonnaroo. The John Butler Trio did a song about the uh, situation in New Orleans and how the government failed to help. Their comments were cut. The Flaming Lips were talking about the war in Iraq and President Bush's role therein. Those comments were cut. There have been allegations of any number of other comments. The Night Watchman, Tom Morello, was a guest on our show. He's been cut. And in fact, from Lollapalooza, 
Lollapalooza, according to Pearl Jam, some 20 instances of the nastiest of the curse words, the F word, went out on Lollapalooza, but their political comments didn't. This is causing a major stir among advocates of what's called net neutrality. People who are absolutists about free speech on the web, especially when you have a telecommunications company controlling what comes into your house because they sell you the line, and then broadcasting, they were the only people who broadcast Lollapalooza or Bonnaroo, many of these major festivals, I would say they have a public responsibility to, to you know, if 60,000 people heard something in the park, don't they have the responsibility to, to broadcast what actually happened, well, webcast it, what actually happened? You're absolutely right, Jim. I mean, the, the issue of net neutrality is who's in control of the content. And the, uh, the net neutrality proponents say that the, the users of the web should be in control of that content. No, there, there should be no broadband company being able to control what they see, what they hear, what they, what they access on the Internet. So it's a huge issue. Now we're finding out that uh, there seems to be a pattern here to what AT&T has been doing. They've been uh, regularly omitting controversial political content from the stage banter at various concerts that they, that they broadcast. That This is a serious charge. If, if it had been a one-time yeah. incident, you could see, okay, somebody, somebody got itchy, he, he had a problem with the content, and he made a bad decision. But this seems to be a pattern well, and it's uh, that coming has existed out, for, for months. They were trying to distance themselves, AT&T, from who the content monitor, they prefer that word to censor, who they were. But in fact, it turns out, as I understand it, it was actually their advertising agency in L.A., uh, you know, when a, a video company shoots the concert at Bonnaroo or Lollapalooza, they send it, the video out to this this company in L.A. who was the advertising agency for AT&T. And then there's a content monitor who's listening to everything with his or her hand on the button, just like network TV. You know, the, the troubling thing here is AT&T is one of the top 10 donors corporately for the Bush campaign in 2004. It, it clearly seems to be an example of we like George Bush and we don't like artists who say that he's not a good guy. It underscores a bigger point in addition to neutrality. What What is my problem? I got dozens of emails, Greg. What is your problem, Jim Deergottis, with corporate sponsorship at Lollapalooza? Well, for the rest of their lives, AT&T is going to be linked to Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam performed on the AT&T stage at Lollapalooza. They are going to be looking at pictures of themselves under the AT&T corporate logo as if they endorse that corporation. Clearly, they do not. The language on PearlJam.com on their website is uh, is that this is an issue of free speech, and, and we're very troubled by it. And uh, it's very eloquent. I, I think they're very upset to have been linked and to have to have gotten in bed with this corporation. Well, I think this puts the onus on the festival organizers whether or not they're going to continue to work with AT&T to simulcast these concerts. And it also means what is AT&T going to do? Are they going to be able to are, are they going to be putting contracts out in front of artists saying, "Hey, we're allowed to censor your performance in order for us to broadcast your performance, we have to the right to censor your performance." There's some very huge issues that are that are coming up in regards to what AT&T is doing. Uh, Jenny Toomey, the uh, executive director of the Future of Music Coalition, they've been very outspoken about the net neutrality issue. And, and Toomey issued a statement in which she said, this censorship speaks to the heart of plans by AT&T and other big telecoms to set themselves up as gatekeepers of Internet content. If AT&T can't be trusted to webcast the political stage banter of a few rock bands, why would we turn the keys to the Internet over to them? Yeah. Their promises to not block Internet content now ring hollow. I tell you, artists ought to look at whether, you know, can we live with our stuff being censored? Should we sign a, an agreement to broadcast our stuff via AT&T? Uh, the festival organizers, the same people who did Lollapalooza, are doing the Austin City Limits Fest in a couple of weeks. There are 150 bands playing there. They've got the same deal with Blue Room. Will this censorship be in existence there? That's a big question. Mm -hmm. Finally, the fans. You know, you, the consumer. Do you really want to sign up with a company that's going to decide what you can or can't hear uh, on the Internet? We're hearing a little bit of a lovely composition by the 18th century British composer William Boyce. Greg, we've never talked about him on Sound Opinions. But his music was the sample in a recent study by researchers at Stanford University Medical School. The gist of it is that music, like Boyce's, increases brain receptivity and retention. We've got on the phone Dr. Vinod Menon, the Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Neurosciences, to talk about this study. Dr. Menon, uh, you were the senior author of this paper. Can you tell us what you were interested in finding by studying music and the brain? Right. 
right. So we were interested in how the brain actually segments and sorts out a continuous stream of uh, sound into various cognitively interesting segments. Well, it's interesting because music has been uh, singled out as by certain right-wing thinkers saying that uh, music will lead to all sorts of hedonism and it's bad for the body, it's bad for the brain. And what you're saying with this study, I think, is that the brain is, is very active when it's listening to music and, in fact, at a state of heightened alert, it seems. Uh, yes, and actually, you know, there's a whole complex series of processes which are generated when you're listening to uh, these pieces of music, uh, any piece of music, really. And the brain has to actively and dynamically process this information. And some of, them is, some of this is actually pretty automatic. Uh, furthermore, it also evokes very, very strong physiological responses as well in relation mm. to the, the things that we subjectively find very interesting. It's um, so it makes you feel better physically? Well, it does affect mood, and there are areas in the brain which are involved in uh, processing reward. And these can be very strongly activated in response to, uh, you know, music that, you know, you like. Uh, and we've played, uh, you know, pieces of classical music to uh, non-musicians, and we see very strong responses in these in these reward centers as well. So now, I thought when I was reading about your study, one of the things I found interesting is when you were playing this familiar but but not necessarily uh, pieces everybody knew inside out, pieces of classical music for your subjects, one of the things that actually piqued the brain stimulation the most is when there would be a pause between movements or when there would be, if I'm following this right, a, a dissonant note. So in other words, not really the really musical music, but sometimes the absence of music or noise. Yes, in this particular study, it was uh, really the, the pause in between uh, movement transitions. So the closure of a previous movement and the anticipation of what is going to come triggers a whole range of brain responses. And these are actually much more salient than even detecting a mismatch chord or uh, some violation in the auditory sequence. Well, now, Professor, if you played, let's say you got a punk uh, rock set, you know, and you played that, you know, 30 songs in 20 minutes, some, you know, really noisy, short, sharp starts, would you be more stimulated? I think, you know, shorter pauses that are inserted uh, across uh, the stream of uh, music as well as deviants are going to elicit some kind of brain responses, probably a hierarchy of these. What was interesting in this particular study is the very intense response that's actually evoked during uh, this period when something is coming to an end and there's anticipation, mm. expectation, and perhaps some kind of an internal predictive model of what might actually come next. Certainly, you know, in the last 50 years or so, there's been a lot of experimentation with, you know, Stockhausen and Philip Glass and inserting fairly long segments of silence in between and the expectation is that this is actually uh, quite uh, thought-provoking, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And the question we don't know yet is um, how long these responses can be sustained, you know, after the, after the pause actually starts. Uh, that's still an open question, but clearly... Uh, composers have been uh, experimenting with this, and there may be some, you know, real brain basis for uh, setting up uh, novel musical stimuli in this way. What does this say to our school systems, which seem to be underrating the value of music education? Uh, that is one of the first things that's always on the chopping block when it comes to educating uh, the young people in this country. And this seems to say something completely different, that uh, music does have a very important role in, in how the brain functions and potentially the educational aspects of that. Yeah, there's been this kind of long-standing debate about the relationship between uh, music, for example, and math abilities and so on. I think the more recent studies are kind of indicating that the, you know, anything that you can use to sustain attention uh, for a, a long period of time is a useful device to kind of build uh, cognitive and mental abilities in children, and uh, music certainly is a very, very powerful force to uh, re uh, reach that kind of a, a state and goal. What about rock music? Would that be something that may factor into uh, future study? Throw in a rock opera, you know? <laughs> it is possible. We haven't really gone about thinking about them uh, and constructing those kinds of experiments, but I think uh, based on a conversation here, it's certainly something to... Uh, uh, consider as we move forward into the future. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking to Professor Vinod Menon of uh, Stanford. Thank you.
Yes, everybody wants some, according to Van Halen, and apparently they want some again because the band has reunited with its original lead singer, David Lee Roth, after 22 years apart. That first run of the band, six albums in a span of 1978 through 1984, two 10 million selling albums in that span. The band has had several lead singers since then, Sammy Hagar, Gary Sharon. Uh, they've uh, made up and broken up with, with Hagar over that time. They've made up and broken up with uh, Roth over that time. Now, finally, they're back on the road with Roth. Famously fractured history, but all is sweetness and light, as you can hear from the press conference this week. This is not a reunion. This is a new band. Usually when a band comes back like us, it's rockers with walkers. And this is everything but. Meet us in the future, not the past year. Now, Roth is talking about a future, but let's face it. This is going to be 25 songs from the span of 1978 through 1984. The biggest surprise will be if they perform any songs uh, associated with the Hagar version of the band, which no did way. have no nine top 40 hits. So it'll be interesting if they completely ignore that part of their catalog. Jim, the website had some hinky stuff happening on yeah, it. Yeah, if you clicked on it the day the announcement was made and you looked at the cover of the first album, Michael Anthony, their longtime bass player, had been airbrushed out and Wolfgang, Eddie's son, had been put in. And he wasn't <laughs> even born in 1978 when that album was made. Once again, they're writing somebody out of their history as they wrote Roth out of the history during the Hagar years and vice versa. These guys hate each other. It's all about the money. It's even more despicable than the police reunion. It's uh, Well, at least the police reunion had the original three members. They yeah. can't even get the original four members back on stage together. Michael Anthony's been booted out of the band. What's Wolfgang, Michael Anthony doing now? Wolfgang, his 16-year-old son, has replaced him as the bass player. Anthony apparently is uh, going to do a tour with Hagar. <laughs> oh, snap! So, uh, here we go. The dueling Van Halens will be on the road in the fall. They're applauding the DJ. Not the music, not the musician, not the creator, but the medium. This is it. The beatification of the beat, the dance age. This is the moment when even the white man starts dancing. That is one of the great characters in English rock history. Actually, that's the actor Steve Coogan impersonating one of the great characters in English rock history, Anthony Wilson. You may not have heard the name Anthony Wilson, but he was a star in the movie 24-Hour Party People. He, he made that movie, Steve Coogan playing Anthony Wilson, a movie documenting the, the Manchester scene uh, in, in England from the early 80s through the early 90s when Manchester appeared to be the center of the musical universe and the man at the center of the Manchester scene, Anthony Wilson, at the age of 57, has just died of cancer. There would have been no Manchester scene. There would have been no factory records. The uh, label, which was the home of bands like Joy Division and New Order and Happy Mondays and Derity Column, there would have been no Hacienda, the nightclub, which was the center of the dance universe starting around 1987-88 through the early 90s. When, we, when you saw that explosion of rave music throughout the world and Europe, it all so sort of started at the Hacienda. The Hacienda was the epicenter of that. Anthony Wilson could be seen at the Hacienda holding mm. court till all hours, till the dawn, every night. Living large. What a raconteur, Jim. I had the opportunity to interview him a couple times. Saw him in action at various panels like at the New Music Seminar. He walked in the New Music Seminar one year and was surrounded by the, the godfathers of Detroit techno and some of the great house DJs from Chicago. And basically walked in there and said, you're all dead, aren't you? We've mm. taken over the world, you know. It's kind wow. of like, and he would be that kind of guy that instant was a lightning rod for controversy, for off the wall comments. Anthony Wilson, one of the great behind the scenes people in the music business, dead at the age of fifty seven. Greg, I think the best way to pay tribute to him is to uh, hear a little bit from some of the key bands on Factory Records.
That's a little taste of the factory record scene created by Anthony Wilson in England. For a complete list of those bands that we just played for you, go to soundopinions.org and the footnotes from today's show. In addition, give us a call at any time if you have any kind of comment about today's show, 1-888-859-1800. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, the Rock Doctors are back in the office. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Jim and I are donning the lab coats. We've got the stethoscopes dangling from our necks. It is time for the rock doctors to get back in their offices. Every few months, we like to help a listener with a musical problem. Give them a prescription. And this week, we've got Pat Lydon from West Rogers Park in Chicago. Pat, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. So, so Pat, we need some symptoms here. What, uh, what's ailing you? Well, I am a baby boomer. And what happened was this spring I was planning a trip to go to Ireland. I was taking my two, two of my nephews to Ireland, and they're 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. Dan and Tim, I have to mention their names. Okay. And um, these kids are very cool, and they're very into music, as am I. But they, um, you know, they're into rap and some stuff I don't know. So I knew we were going to be spending a lot of time in the car when we were in Ireland, and I wanted to have some stuff that they would... Like, I have to admit, I don't know very much about hip-hop. I did take your advice with Lupe Fiasco, because you had him on the show. and I lo- And there was one song, I bought that song on iTunes, and they loved it. But other than that... Is that a- Kick Push, the uh, single where Kick where's- Push, oh okay. my God, they, they loved that. So we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. And away he rolled, just a rebel to the world with no place to go. And so we kick... But that was kind of it for me. And I'm embarrassed to say, okay, I have to confess, I do have one hip-hop album, and it's MC Hammer. You know, but you know, so I, was, it, was that just a, a lapse in judgment at one point in your life? You know, or something? What happened? no, it was you know, I was at the working out at the gym. You know, they played it in jazzercise. I got kind of used to it. So, <laughs> well, well, what turned you off, or to put it in our rock doctor terms, how did you develop your allergy to hip hop? I think. Well, first of all, my friends mocked me so mercilessly with the MC Hammer album. That was part of it. But also, I just, it just, you know, I never felt like it talked to me. Then it kind of went into this gangster thing, which kind of scared me. Mm. And I, I just never picked up on it. And it could be that I just wasn't used to such a verbal form, almost demanding to me for me to listen to. 
Okay. All right. Well, that's all right. Well, that's all right. you know, she she's come to the right place, Jim. I think yeah. Pat. Uh, she hasn't you... been infected. We're going to no. fix that. No. Yeah. It's an allergy. In order to, to, I think, focus in here on on what kind of hip hop. Tell us a, a little bit about what kind of you know what's in the heaviest rotation as far as what you like in rock and what you do love. Okay. Well, I'm kind of um, I listen to a lot of pretty much standard, you know, Beatles, Stones, Dylan's, Springsteen. I know that drives you crazy, Jim, but. Um, no, the, I don't hold it against anybody, no. but okay. great. <laughs> the band Van Morrison, and a lot of blues, a lot of Chicago blues. I am a Chicago person. Okay. But right now, it's Wilco Sky Blue Sky, mm-hmm. you know, virtually 24-7. And um, I'm listening to the Dean and Britta album, which I was thrilled to hear you talk about it the other day. Yeah, on the Buried Treasure I show. Love, I love that. I love Luna, and I love Galaxy 500. So that was, I just was, you okay, know, I so love Okay, so a little bit album. of psychedelic rock. And when you say Wilco, did you stay with him through Yankee Hotel Foxtrot oh, yeah. and, and Summer Teeth? Oh, yeah. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm getting an inspiration already. The whole bit, you know. Okay. Well, I, I think I'm ready to prescribe. I'm Dr. ready to. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready wow. to go here. Great. Because um, this is just a minor, minor. This is like she came in. Uh, she just needs a band aid. Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, you've got a great start on music already. You're already into some great stuff. I was a little worried when I was uh, was thinking about this at first, thinking maybe I'm going too far for Pat here. This may be over-prescribing. Yeah. You know, she may overdose on this. But the more I hear you talk, the more I think you're ready for this, okay? All right. Uh, I'm going to recommend that you take a massive dose of Outkast and uh, take uh, listen to the record Stanconia, which came out in, uh, I think it was about 2000. Now, at, initially, Pat, I was thinking... There's a lot on here. There's a lot of music to absorb. These guys are, are, you know, they do have a little bit of a surrealistic streak to them. They can go off on a a limb with saw in hand and and, and go a little far. Some people think they're a little bit too outlandish, a little little too bold. But at the same time, there's a lot going on here lyrically. There's an intelligence underneath all of the music. Um, There's some, I know that you're probably not into some of the more uh, misogynistic aspects of it. No, absolutely Um, not. There's a hint of this from one of the, it's a duo from the South, from Atlanta, Big Boy and Dre. Some of the Big Boy tracks... A little bit more into that territory that you're you're not so happy about with some of the uh, the, the gangsta hip hop. Yeah. But uh, I think he's nicely balanced by this guy Dre, and in particular, I want you to uh, listen to a song called Miss Jackson, which I think is one of the best, most well-written songs ever, and and certainly up there with anything Springsteen or, or or Wilco have done in terms of just really strong lyrical content married to a great melody and it's the kind of song when you hear it you're probably going to be humming it for days afterwards so okay. I, I'm going to go with this with this Stanconia record okay Outcast Stanconia I'm sorry Miss Jackson Ooh, I am for real never meant to make your daughter cry I apologize a trillion times I'm sorry Miss Jackson Usually, I uh, go out more on a limb than Dr. Cott, but I think I may even be being more conservative here. I'm going to, you know, given given that she took a wrong turn in the mid-'80s with a Hammer, I'm going to go <laughs> to a classic record from the 80s, uh, universally considered one of the greatest hip-hop albums ever made. I think the thing, Pat, if I could put it in rock terms that you have to remember, if you had never heard any rock and roll whatsoever at all, right, and were suddenly plopped down in the middle of it, and suddenly all over the radio is like the awful hair metal bands, and you thought, Uh well, that is rock. But no, you you had to dig deeper for something like you loved, Galaxy 500. There was great stuff happening underground, but it wasn't necessarily what was being sold as popular. So some of the misogyny and the glorification of violence that happens in mainstream hip-hop, well, there has always been and there is now an underground that is much more creative, much more artistic, much more positive, much more intellectual and and thought stimulating. All of those adjectives, I think, apply to Three Feet High and Rising, the landmark album that De La Soul made in 1989. These were essentially three geeky guys from middle class Long Island, and they proclaimed in a revolutionary way with their debut album, this is the Daisy Age, y'all. We're hippies. We want to spread peace and love. We, Those are my people. Not that we yeah. don't know tragedy in our lives. Uh, Paz Nus, one of the guys in De La, he wrote a, uh, a song called Say No Go, which is built on a whole note sample. Okay, uh-huh. right, so you're going to know that. Okay. And it's a response to Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. Now let's get right on down to the skit. A baby is brought into a world of pits. And if we could have talked that soon in a delivery room, it would have asked the nurse for a hit. The reason for this, the mother is a jerk. Excuse me, junkie, which brought the work of the old into a new life. What a way. But this what a way has been a way of today. Anyway. 
He's essentially saying, I hate drug use because it is killing my brother. My brother is addicted to and dying from crack abuse right now. And so Nancy's just say no campaign is noble in a way, but I hate every part of the way she's doing it. So it's dealing with very interesting issues. You know what I mean? They talk about how they lost their virginity in a song called uh, Genifa Taught Me. Access to her code, love struck, was my mold. Took a look, dropped my textbook, Jennifer. Oh, breakfast, broken fast. She was in my English class. Ask for notes, rock my boat, Jennifer. Oh. So these are some of the, 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 the <laughs> concepts of what they're talking about, but it succeeds because of the music. The music is an incredible psychedelic pastiche of sounds that, uh, you know, the hardest hardcore hip hopper, if you go up to them today and say, De La Soul, everybody gives these guys their props because what they were able to do with their voices over these very complicated and very musical backings, everybody respected even if they thought these guys were a little soft and a little crazy and a little hippie. So I'm going to say De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, Dr. Kotz going with Stanconia by Outkast. Uh, we, we know you're going to take your medicine, and then we're going to check back with you in like in a week or ten days. Actually, you'll probably have to call six times to get an appointment, then we'll keep you waiting again an hour. <laughs> I'm, just, no, I'm no, channeling no. what my healthcare experiences <laughs> have yeah, been like lately. Too. You know, of course, I have never heard of either of these, so good. I'm That's happy good. to take That's the good. medicine. Thanks, Thank Pat. You. Okay, bye-bye. All right, it is a week later. Hopefully Pat Lydon from uh, West Rogers Park has been taking her medicine. Time for the rock doctors to check back with her. Pat, before you tell us if the prescriptions were working, tell us again, what was your goal here in coming to the doctors in uh, in trying to get brought up to speed on hip-hop? I just sort of wanted to get a better idea of what it was. I mean, I, I really have never listened to any hip-hop or rap, and I just wanted to familiarize myself with it and be able to speak really to my nephews about it. So I took my medicine. And how did it work? Well, you know, um, Greg, you recommended an album by Outkast. Correct. And I got to tell you, it was not for me. <laughs> he predicted that that might have been a I radical. I thought that might have been a stretch. Oh, yeah, that was a stretch. Um, it was just, you know, the first the first song I heard, I guess I didn't listen to them in the order that they're on the album, which didn't really make much difference, I guess. But yeah. The first song that came on, kind of, you know, my first impression was um, sort of uh, reminded me like a Bootsy's rubber band we used to listen to in college. I thought, oh, uh-huh. Bootsy, you know. There you Bootsy go. Collins, yeah. Then the next song is We Like These Hoes. <laughs> and after that, it just totally disintegrated into, you know, all the stereotypes of rap for me. I and see, there were bad side effects to that prescription, oh, Mr. Cott, oh, Dr. Oh, Cott. Yeah, there's a few songs on there that I, I would admit, I, I think if you'd listen to the word, the Hose song comes later in the mix. You would have gotten to Miss Jackson before that. You know, I didn't like Miss Jackson. Really? I mean, I liked the music. I thought the music was really catchy, and I liked the sound of the song. But the chorus, you know, my immediate response to it was Eddie Haskell, and I, or, you know, discontinued. Wow. You know, I just thought, oh, yeah. You know, meaning, meaning no, was smarmy. Like As he's talking yeah. to the mother of uh, of the woman who's having his baby, he's being kind of smarmy and yeah. suck up. in a, yeah. Nice Leave It to Beaver reference there. Yeah, know? yeah. You emptied that bottle of you know, uh, prescription into the into the toilet and I did, flushed you know, it down. There was just too much. It was N-word, bitches, hoes, graphic. Yeah. I could never play that. My nephew, actually, I talked to my nephew, uh-huh. Tim, in Minnesota, and he was like, oh, let me hear the albums when you're done. You know, I'm like, sure. And then um, there's no way I would let him listen to now, this. You said he's what, about 15? He's 12. Oh, he's 12. He's 12. Yeah, yeah, 12, I mean, he's, yeah. A, he's an old 12. He's a very mature kid, yeah. but I still... Yeah, 12 is, 12 is too young for, the, for when that. When he's 18, maybe I'll let him. But I'm sorry it didn't work. It was, it was an honest attempt to give you a prescription that would, uh, would cure your ills, Pat, and I'm sorry that it, didn't, it, it, it went a little far. So I recommended uh, De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising in a classic album in the hip-hop canon. How did that work? That, that worked out much better. Okay. And it, um, you know, uh, in a conversation with one of the nephews, I asked him why he liked rap, and he said he likes it because it's clever. Hmm. And I felt like there was some cleverness to this album. And I felt like that this was, this was, you know, I enjoyed, the music was good, and there were samples that I knew. There were some James Brown, some mm-hmm. Steely Dan, 
there was stuff that a little Barry White, you know. Now, I got to say, I wouldn't want, there's a lot of this stuff I wouldn't want the boys to listen to also, but there are some songs they could definitely listen to, and this is something I could see myself listening to at the gym. So, Pat, is there a particular song from uh, Three Feet High and Rising uh, that, that really uh, connected with you? Yeah, it would have to be the song I know. It has a Steely Dan sample. I think it's Peg. Yeah. from the Asia album, mm-hmm. and it was a big song when I was in college, and I think that people that I, you know, when I get together with my college reunion buddies, I think they'd get a kick out of hearing that. Greetings, girl, and welcome to my world of phrasing right up to that. It's the daisy age, you're about to walk top stage, so wipe your lottoes on the mat. Now, see, you can be really hip at the reunion when they're saying, these kids today, I don't understand uh, hip-hop. You know this song that this yeah. new hip-hop song is built on. Listen to this. Don't have to worry about me squashing other deals because they've already been squished. Freeze a frame of our moves the same. Wish we can continue right behind the bush. You'll stay with me, I know this, but not because of all my earthly treasures or regardless to the fact that I'm past the noose, but because... Well, you know the whistling part in there, too, I bet. Yeah. Uh, you know where that's from? No. No, oh. where is it? Oh, it is Redding, Doctor. Doctor of the Bay. Oh, okay, of course, yeah. So now you got now you got two cool things to okay. tell your friends. Listen, I know I know not only the song's right, but listen, I know where these samples are from, too. These people have known me a long time. They know yeah. I'm not cool. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's part of the Rock Doctor's, uh, you know, goal here is okay. to uh, make the world cool, one patient at a time. Okay. Thanks a million. You bet. Take care, Pat. One, two, one, two, three. Yeah, yeah. If you are in need of medical assistance or you have a comment on today's show or any of our shows, email us at interact at soundopinions.org or call our hotline 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of the new albums by the new pornographers and MIA. Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a delightfully effervescent piece of pop called Mutiny, I Promise You, by the uh, Canadian supergroup The New Pornographers, their uh, fourth album called Challengers. Supergroup's a relative term. These are all indie rock heroes and heroines. Probably the best known name is uh, Nico Case, who's been on our show and has quite a career on her own as an alternative country singer-songwriter. But Dan Behar, one of the uh, two primary songwriters here, has a band called Destroyer, which is popular in the indie underground. And uh, Carl A.C. Newman, the nominal band leader, uh, has his own career as well. There was a revealing quote, Greg, that I read recently from Newman uh, in an interview with the Toronto Star. 
He said, every time I make money from playing music, it feels like I'm pulling the wool over someone's eyes. <laughs> and I think that that attitude is indicative of the new pornographers. What you have is a bunch of friends for years now, for a decade, who come together every couple of years up in Vancouver generally, and they go to the studio, and they are all incredibly smart, witty, literate pop historians. They got record collections. Every single person in this eight or ten uh, member collective. And they try to outdo each other. Who can write more hooks in one three-minute song? And they all come together and they trade vocals and they make these records. We've recently seen them playing uh, bigger festivals, doing more extensive tours, starting to get some mainstream attention. Now comes album number four. Everybody puts their other careers on hold long enough to devote themselves to making the album and touring behind it. Challengers is the name of the disc. I'm going to play a a uh, Behar song, which uh, I think is a bit of a departure, something uh, a little different. It's almost uh, kind of him trying to do hip-hop in a power-pop way. It's called Myriad Harbor. Took a train. Ah, who cares? You always end up in the city. I said to call, look up for one, and see just how the sun sets in the sky. I said to John, do you think the girls here ever wonder how they got so pretty? Oh well, I do. Look out upon me. Boys with a homemade microphone have very interesting sounds. All the girls fall into ruin, dropping out of school, breaking daddy's heart. Just I walked into the local record store and asked for an American music anthology. It sounds fun. They tore off my skirt. Myriad Harbor from the New Pornographer's fourth album, Challengers. That is a Dan Behar uh, special. Behar almost stealed his record with that song. I think it's That's a, a great it's song. A, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's kind of out of left field. He's not the main guy in the band, as you pointed out. Newman is the uh, the main songwriter. Behar kind of cameos with three or four songs per record. But that is a gem. What I've loved about the new pornographers in the past is the way they combine that Burke Backrack, Jimmy Webb songcraft, that, that arrangement, sophistication with exuberance of an indie rock band, a garage rock band. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I love this band, and I, I think this is a very good record. It's just a little bit disappointing to me in that it is not up to the par of the 2005 record Twin Cinema, uh, mainly because I think the energy quotient is a little bit down on this record. There's, there's a lot more mellowness on this record, a lot more ballad-heavy. There's some beautiful songs in, in that vein. Myriad Harbor is probably one of the more up beat songs and one of the more fun-loving songs, but you look at songs like Go Places or Adventures in Solitude. Those are beautiful hymn-like songs. Uh, the layered harmonies uh, there are, are, are terrific to listen to. But I, you know, I, I would have wished for more blasts of adrenaline. That used to be the new pornographer's calling card, and I'm hearing a little bit less of that in this record. So I can't give it an unqualified buy it. I've got to say that this <laughs> record is a little bit less than I was looking for from these oh. guys. Extremely talented band, but this is just not in the top shelf of new pornographers. Well, records. once again, Mr. Cotter, I think you're falling into a rock critic trap. I think the shorthand that uh, a lot of our peers are giving this album is that this is the new pornographer's mature record. Uh, that comes largely from the fact that there's glockenspiel on the disc, <laughs> along, along with mandolin 
and flute and sawing strings and plucking banjo. They did try to get a little more orchestral here. I think we've had three albums of effervescent, bouncy pop from them. The last album, Sing Me Spanish Techno, was kind of the epitome of that. The reason I played Mutiny, I promise you, up top is that's as bouncy as they've ever gotten. So there is still this bounciness, but then they took some chances on other songs. You know, Myriad Harbor, which kind of defies being put into any genre, or something like that rousing, anthemic closing track, The Spirit of Giving, which just builds and builds. I think this is as good as the new pornographers get. It's a little different. I'm glad to hear them do something different after three albums, and I say it's a buy it. from the second M.I.A. record, Kala. M.I.A., you may recall, uh, made a debut record in 2005 that caused quite a stir for a number of reasons. A great piece of dance music, uh, world music, uh, brought sounds from all over the planet under the uh, kaleidoscope of uh, modern club music. Maya Arul Pragasam is an exotic uh, creation. She uh, has spent time in London. She was born in London, spent about five, six years in Sri Lanka, her uh, father is a Sri Lankan rebel. Yeah, the Tamil uh, Tigers. Pretty hardcore background. She spent some time there, went back to London, made a debut record on basically a $300 keyboard and the assistance of some producers in, in London, sold over 100,000 copies, got picked up by Interscope Records, made her an underground star. Now she's back with album number two, Kala. Initially, this was supposed to be her big collaboration with Timbaland, and a lot of people were saying that she was going to collaborate with the U.S. producer Timbaland, who has uh, been behind big hits by people like Missy Elliott and Nelly Furtado. That blew up. She ended up only recording one song with Timbaland on this record. There have been a variety of excuses uh, given as to why that did not happen. She had some serious visa problems. She decided that she wanted to go her own way and work with uh, more obscure people. She ended up uh, producing uh, the large part of this record with a relatively unknown house DJ named Dave Taylor, a.k.a. Switch. And it is an exotic record. Let's hear a little bit of Kala and a track called Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy is a cover of a 1982 song from a Bollywood soundtrack and a song that she heard in her youth. She's now doing a cover version of it. It's called Jimmy. It's on her new album called Kala, and it's on Sound Opinions. Jimmy That is the song Jimmy from the second album, Kala, by M.I.A., 
the uh, London-born Sri Lankan rapper. Uh, I do love that song, Greg. I love the way that the Bollywood strings mix with the Italian disco beat. I uh, I really like the song Mango Pickle Down River, which <laughs> features a chorus of Aboriginal kids and uh, the soca beats on bird flu. I think that uh, what DJs Switch and Diplo, her on-again, off-again boyfriend uh, collaborator, what they do in incorporating different world rhythms and a kind of truly global perspective uh, with MIA is great. I, I wish the album was better, though. <laughs> mm. I'm going toward a burn it here on the buy it, burn it, trash it sound opinion scale because there are some problems. I was not as big a fan of Arular, the 2005 debut, as many on the Sound Opinions gang here. Yeah, Galang was a wonderful, wonderful single. The rest of the album I don't think measured up. And live, MIA is really stilted and not a very good performer. That's still the case because I just saw her at Lollapalooza recently. You know, she doesn't blow me away. And I think a lot of uh, what's good about her recordings are the productions. And, uh, you know, she's spearheading that. It's her vision. That's great. Kala is named for her mom, and part of her charm is her sense of self-empowerment and self-respect and feminism, which means a lot more in a place like India than it does in some parts of the world. Well, hell, everywhere it means something today. Still, women don't get the respect that they always deserve. And then she does something like tacking on Come Around, produced by your hero Timbaland at the end of the record, where she lets this buffoon make all these horrible jokes about coming to my teepee. I mean, he hasn't even got the right Indian that he's insulting. Hey, hey. Baby girl, you and me need to go to your TP. The moon is full and I'm shining, baby. I know you see me. Put a hump two on your back just like that. Ooh, girl, you on fire. I don't want to be in love with you. I'm going to just break you off and say goodbye. The night is young. Don't make me wait. You just might miss your chance. I'm going to tell you the truth. Timberland, I'm the mother of man. Today, today. That's a really bad uh, track, and I'm glad that Timbaland didn't produce the rest of this record. The good parts are great. Uh, burn those. Uh, overall, though, it, it's still, I don't think she's all that. I have to say, I agree with you on the Timbaland song, and I, and I disagree with just about everything else you said. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the Timbaland uh, collaboration is a huge, huge letdown, and it sort of feels tacked on at the end of the record. And it's really saying something when you feel like the Timbaland production has been outdone by everything that has come before. Yeah. Timbaland is usually way on top of his game. He was not on that particular track, especially when he starts guest rapping on the, on the song. He's a guy who's just produced, never rap. But I have to say, the production here otherwise is first-rate, extraordinary. I think one of the issues with the first record is that the hooks were there, but the production was a little lightweight. It was a little bit muted. It was cheap. I mean, you know, $300 keyboard was yeah, at the sounded, center of that indie, record. Yeah. And it sounded very rinky-dink. And, and it had a charm all its own. But clearly had, she had to go somewhere new. When she hooked up with Interscope, I go, uh-oh, here comes trouble. They are going to turn her into, you know, a Nelly Furtado type Look what situation. they did with Nelly, yeah. Get the big name producer and let's let her conform to, uh, you know, Western uh, dance music. Well, that's not what she did at all. She went in the completely opposite direction. What we've got here is a swirling kaleidoscope of beats from all around the world, very non-Western in terms of the kind of beats that are being used, the kind of tempos that are being used. I think it's a, an extraordinary record to Wait listen to on headphones. Wait a minute, though. What, what about those two? She's trying to suck in you rock critics. Yeah. She's sampling Roadrunner on Bamboo Banga. She's sampling uh, New Order's Blue Monday on uh, $20. I mean, those are strictly sops to the rock critics. Those Let are, me show how those plugged are, in an indie and underground I well, am. Well, you know, it's nice of you to recognize the two or three Western uh, influences on this particular record because they're part of like about 150 well, yeah, I told influences you. from around the country. I'm down with the Aborigines. The More Aborigines. Well, good. I mean, it, they're all over this record, Jim. I, I can't see how you how you can decry the record for having a couple of uh, well-known samples on it because it, the, the rest of the record, to my mind, is a mind-blowing collage of sounds from around the world. I love the way this thing sounds on headphones. I love the way it sounds on a big PA. You're right about her live performances, but i got to say, hearing the performance, just closing my eyes and listening to that music, I'm going, this is some of the most adventurous music I've heard all weekend. It, without a doubt, she is creating something new and something fresh, something that we have not heard. Well, what part we, of me saying that I liked what Diplo and Switch did and Burn It uh, are you not getting? Well, I, 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 well, then why didn't you give it a buy it? Because it's not a buy it album. It's not a perfect album. It's not perfect. 
because it has got that horrible Timbaland song <laughs> at the end. But the first ten tracks are terrific stuff. She doesn't have a diva voice, but she's got a great ear for hooks. My test is if, I, if I'm singing the song to myself two or three days later, even though I'm not listening to it, something is sinking in there. And this record has got hooks all over it. It's not as obviously hooky as Arular was, but it's one of those records that I think is going to have a, a long shelf life because she does have a great ear for those hooks, and the beats are fantastic. I think she sort of created a template that is comparable to what Timbaland and Missy were doing in the late 90s. She's way ahead of the game right now in terms of the sounds. And I think she's just introduced this guy, Switch, who's worked with her in the past, and people are going to be start looking at this guy and say, I want a piece of that action. I want to start working with this guy now. I think this is a, an important record. I think in terms of what it does for dance music in, in the year 2007, it's very much at the top shelf, and it's a buy-it record all the way. All right, Greg, that's a long-winded buy it from you and a uh, burn it from me. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, very exciting. We are going to look at the life and career of one of the most uh, notorious and beloved figures in uh, popular music for the last 40 years, Rocky Erickson, a very misunderstood pioneer, can be said to have invented two styles of popular music. Yeah. <laughs> Psychedelic music, punk rock music. Rocky Erickson was at the ground floor of both of them. We're going to look at his life and career. Two kinds of music I love. I also love our ace production team of uh, Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And, uh, of course, our executive producer, Southside, Tori Malatia, the man who we cannot operate without. I'm glad he didn't get that gig he was up for. I heard he was going to be the bassist in Van Halen before yeah. they tapped Wolfgang. Michael Anthony had the right idea, Jim. He offered the job to Malatia first. Tori was the only man for that job. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hello, my name is uh, Daryl Mayfield. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I like your show. I just started listening to it, and I got one CD by a guy called uh, Richard Thompson called Sweet Warrior. And he played one song, which was great, but I started playing the other songs. I really got into it. I see young girls with old faces. I see good girls in bad places. I see plain girls in finery. Everyone be the death of me. And uh, I think you're a breath of fresh air for listeners who are trying to find something different. And uh, keep keep the good work. I'm going to listen to more of your show in the coming months and years ahead. And I hope you keep us on air for a long time. Okay, thanks, guys. Bye. Hi, my name is Kirsten Malik, and I'm from Chicago. And uh, I had to respond to your rundown of Lollapalooza last week. And uh, you, Jim, especially, talked a lot about the average kid fan at Lala and how they were just sort of Walmart shoppers being advertised to and marginalized by Copa Cabanas. And it seems to me, and I totally don't blame you for this, that you are just not an average fan and you shouldn't try to speak for one. You are a lifetime rock geek who worships Buster Bangs and likes small, dark, crowded clubs, and God love you for it. But my friends and I are probably a little more average than you, I suspect. We love music, but can't be 100 shows a year. And Lala helps us find new bands, uh, cements our love of older ones. We love the free water, the cheap food, the bathrooms, and no lines. And didn't even notice the cabanas you railed about until the second day. They're completely unobtrusive, and all the best space and sound was completely available to everybody. It is a tremendous opportunity for all kinds of average fans. And I just hate to think that uh, your inability to get over the death of the late 90s Lollapalooza might keep any of your more average listeners from trying it out. Thanks again. I'm honest because I love you guys and uh, love the show. Bye.
Hi, this is Matt from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I just wanted to respond to the review you guys did of, of Lollapalooza, and I generally love your show. But Terry Farrell is full of sh um, to spout off this crapola about fighting communism by charging God knows how much for his tickets and his T-shirts and his food it is just ridiculous. And I think you really needed to pin him to the wall on that. Are you saying that you don't like rich people because yeah. they happen to be rich? Well, well that's yeah. screwed. I think it's undemocratic. What did Lenin say? What are you people, talking about? Democracy is based on capitalism. Your... And if you don't have capitalism, you have communism. And capitalism is going to help the world. He's always been full of shit. That's part of his shtick. And, you know, to see $75,000 cabanas at one edge of Grant Park would have just made me barf. So, anyway, I do love the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Hey, my name is Steve Stefanaka from Corp from Massapequa Park, Long Island, New York. How are you? My uh, whole problem with the show is only one thing. You don't play enough Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. Joe Strummer should be eulogized in every single radio program of every show across the United States. I would like to see that moved and implemented in your show. That is my sound opinion, and I feel it is the most important opinion of any other music effigy in the world. Take care, guys. Lord, let go, Johnny Appleseed. He might pass by in the hour of no more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You have to get in the honey.